How did we come to this? How did the United States fall into such a state of division and discord? I have just shared with you an opening question posed by authors Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer. They are the author of Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. They are both award-winning scholars who have been working in the area of political history for many years. Today I am joined by Julian Zelizar to discuss Fault Lines. Hello everyone, I'm Pamela Brewer welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. While today we are discussing a book about political history and not mental health, I would suggest to you that our mental health as a country is very much reflected in our history as a country should I say, our mental health or perhaps the lack thereof. Julian Zelizer is considered one of the pioneers in the revival of American political history. And as I said a moment ago, today he joins us in his capacity as co-author of Fault Lines. Julian, welcome to Mind Talk. Julian, you heard me suggest that our mental health or the lack thereof as a country is very much reflected in our political history and perhaps our political health. I don't know if putting politics and health together makes sense, but I'm going to do it for the sake of our conversation. What is your thought about that? Is there a connection between our political lives and our mental lives? When we are in a moment like we are in today, where there's incredible discord and division and pure anger in the public square, whether we're watching it on television or seeing it in politics, that reflects and connects to what's going on in the country at large. And it doesn't emerge out of nowhere. It's not disconnected from homes uh, and from families, but in fact, uh, often people above, meaning politicians or reporters or Uh, The people who produce popular culture are capturing the zeitgeist of a period. And so I think it's important to understand the public and private breakdowns that are going on. And on the other hand, what people see in front of them on their screens or elsewhere can impact their personal lives. And so when you're watching a lot of uh, rage uh, in, in, in the public square, it can easily bleed into how you communicate with family and friends about political and other kinds of questions. So, so I think it's an important connection that you've drawn. Well, and, and certainly, depending on what you're watching on television, it can uh, reignite or enhance trauma experiences uh, for those who have a trauma history. And for some people, depending on what they're seeing, it can create trauma. Um, so we're, we're living in challenging times. Uh, I will quote from Fault Lines in uh, a, a sentence that you state in, in which you say, the people of the United States are no longer united. That's a strong, that's only part of the sentence, but that, those are strong few words. People of the United States are no longer united. Can that really be true? I mean, we certainly have prided ourselves for many years in being the United States of America. You're saying we're not. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear at this point that the the lines of division over a number of very important issues uh, in, in, in our country today 
that there are points of real genuine disagreement and we are not on the same page as a country. So I think some of the divisions, for example, that you see over race relations in recent years or over immigration, uh, you know, really suggest that on certain fundamental questions about who we are as a country, uh, different regions uh, and different populations have real uh, fundamentally different understandings of what it means to be American. Uh, and, and when you see division and polarization so much over so long, we're now talking three, four decades of this, you have to come to the conclusion that the divisions are real. They're not simply manufactured uh, by, by persons who want division. Uh, they actually exist in the country. And so uh, obviously uh, it, it's, a sad, it's a sad conclusion to reach, but I think it's true. You say that one of the first things to go in terms of how we experienced our world and our country was trust in the government. That was the first thing to go. But that seems like it would be the most critical part of our emotional lives, our social lives, our political lives, the ability to trust the people whom we have entrusted with governing our land. Absolutely. And, and in our book, one of the arguments we make is that divisions always exist in American society. But between the 30s, 1930s and 1970s, you had countervailing forces. You had institutions and organizations that pushed against the divisions that existed. They served as sources uh, for bringing some kind of commonality, some kind of unity even amidst the discord. And uh, there's many. Network television is one we talk about. But we also talk about the government. After the New Deal in the 1930s, the federal government held an enormous place in American society. And different sectors of the country, from farmers who depended on assistance for uh, their, their uh, product, to workers who depended on the government to protect them in the workplace, all looked to the government as a positive institution uh, that can achieve certain kinds of justices and stability here in American society. That really goes away starting in the 70s, starting with Vietnam and Watergate coming together uh, in the terrible scandal uh, of, of Richard Nixon. And, and we never have regained that same kind of trust that existed in the 40s and 50s. And, and we think that had big effects uh, on why there's so much division today. Uh, we lost one of the threads, a big thread, uh, that tried to keep a, a pretty contentious society together. Talk about the, the ways in which we changed as a country um, with the experiences of Nixon and Watergate. But I, I have to wonder, Weren't there people at the time who just thought this was an anomaly and it really wasn't reflective of us as a country? Absolutely. That was the feeling many people had when President Nixon resigns in August of 1974, meaning the hope was this would go away. This would have been a terrible moment. It came after uh, really an increasingly tense era in American politics, and that by his resigning, the optimistic look was that things would get better. We wouldn't repeat the same kind of abuses of presidential power 
we would find uh, issues that united us as a country now that he was gone. This was very much the sentiment that many people had. This is part of why his successor, Gerald Ford, decides to pardon Nixon for the crimes he might have committed because he believes that it was necessary to try to heal the nation. But he was wrong. And it turned out that Nixon resigning didn't really resolve the tensions. And many of the problems that Watergate exposed only got worse. Our presidency only became more powerful. A lot of the corruption that we've seen is recreated by other presidents. And the divisions that surrounded Richard Nixon about what he stood for and what he represented continue right through this day. It sounds like a fairly bleak picture. Um, We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we will continue with Julian E. Zellinger, co-author with Kevin Cruz of Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. My name is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We will be back in just a moment. Julian, you say that the failure to enact public policy that addressed institutional racism and ethnic pluralism ensured that the social tensions that persisted even after the civil rights movement of the 1960s only became more aggravated. That was then. What about now? Now we're in the same place. So this is a an important part of the modern era in American politics. During the 60s, we focused on issues such as legal segregation in the South, or we talked about the explicit denial of voting rights. Uh, and, and then the question shifted by the 70s to how does institutional racism work? That means how is racism, insti- in, uh, how is racism inscribed? in very fundamental parts of society, like the criminal justice system, like the way in which we purchase and sell property. And we didn't make a lot of progress in the 70s or 80s on those issues. Uh, There's a conservative turn in American politics, which focuses more on questions of law and order and has less interest in trying to solve institutional racism. Many Democrats don't want to look uh, as if they are too radical, quote unquote, so they avoid these questions as well. And so they linger. And uh, we argue they've actually become worse. We've seen in the prison system, for example, the way in which race results in a disproportionate number of African-American men uh, being in prison uh, has, has actually worsened the situation rather than somehow it naturally became better. We obviously saw when President Obama was in office all the dramatic policing videos that came out. Uh, because of smartphone technology, showed that uh, in the area of law enforcement, you have very real problems in how racial bias uh, plays into what what police do. And now, uh, in addition to that story, you've seen a resurgence of open racism, 
uh, by politicians, by white nationalist organizations that have really uh, gotten much more intense. Uh, it starts in the 1990s, but uh, is front and center for everyone to see in Charlottesville. And so uh, this is not a, a positive kind of history that we are tracing in terms of race. It, it, I think there's a strong argument to be made that in many areas we are in a worse place in 2019 than we were in the late 60s, even with the expansion of the African-American middle class and the benefits of affirmative action, we have very deeply rooted problems that we're not anywhere closer to solving. So for those people who, when Barack Obama became president, decided that there was no more racial tension in America, uh, not so much. In fact, it worsened, as you said. Yeah, and that's a point in the book we talk about. There was real elation uh, on election night, uh, rationally, that the election of the first African-American president was. It was a historic landmark in our country. It did represent a certain amount of progress, but it would quickly become clear, including to the president himself, that there were limits to what that election meant, uh, that the problems of race and the way racial injustice and division work did not go away because of his election, nor did his election signal that we had made major advances on these questions of institutional racism. Uh, so uh, that's part of the frustration. I, I mean, President Obama himself was facing the birther movement soon after he was elected, which itself played on very uh, retrograde race ideas about the legitimacy of the first African-American president. Uh, and so I think it's an important story uh, in terms of understanding the Obama presidency. There are those who say that had it not, and, and whether you see this is right or wrong, but had it not been for the Obama presidency, there would not have been a Trump presidency. Is that simplifying it too much? Is that real? Is that not real. Yeah, I think that, look, it is not untrue that some of the Tea Party uh, within the Republican Party, a lot of President Trump himself, uh, gained support as a backlash to President Obama. Uh, some uh, look at it as partially a racial backlash to the first African American president, and others just point to a President Obama who was pretty liberal on many issues, such as health care created the conditions for a very conservative takeover when, when he finished. But I think a lot of what was brewing that led to President Trump would have happened with a, another a Democrat in office. It could have been a white Southern Democrat like Bill Clinton, uh, you know, succeeding him. And you would have still had a movement within the GOP that helps explain President Trump and, and changes in the conservative media that help explain President Trump. This has been building really for decades. You've seen a rightward shift in the Republican Party uh, that starts in the 1980s. You've seen an embrace that you uh, can watch in the 1990s with people like Speaker Newt Gingrich uh, in the House of Representatives embracing a smash-mouth approach to politics. And you can see it finally with Fox News and, and the introduction of a new kind of conservative media landscape where almost anything was permissible in terms of what you said, uh, that, that all came before President Obama. I think President Obama is the first president, even more than Clinton, 
to really encounter uh, the severity and intensity of this new kind of conservatism that ultimately led to Trump. So it's not all about Obama that led us to 2016. You uh, provide a quote from uh, someone named Armando Rendon, who in his 1971 Chicano Manifesto said, the North American culture is not worth copying. It is destructive of personal dignity. It's callous. It's vindictive. It's arrogant. It's militaristic. I mean, he goes on and on. Who was Armando Rendon, and what do you think about his words that were uttered in 1971? Well, he's he's part of of an era in the 1970s where many different social groups, uh, and in his case, uh, the Chicano community, uh, as it was called, uh, the Latino American community, is, is discovering that uh, part of empowering itself is, is going to be rejecting a lot of what the country, the United States, said it was about. Uh, and and to, through self-empowerment and through self-discovery of autonomous cultures, argue that the American tradition was not always good, that the reason we have racism was in part because we are a country founded uh, in slavery. The reason Latino Americans face discrimination and uh, even violence uh, in, in many parts of, of the history uh, was the power of you know, the white Christian community uh, translated as what it meant to be American. And so in the 70s, you see writers such as Rendon and others who are making this argument that we have to challenge what it means to be American, uh, what the country is about at its core in terms of values, uh, if we are ever to move to a different place. You know, Martin Luther King, when he spoke in 63 at the March on Washington, he embraced American traditions and American icons like Lincoln to call for the civil rights movement to fulfill its goal. But by the late 60s and by the 70s, from the Black Power movement to people like uh, Rendon, you see a very different argument that fundamentally something was wrong with the way the institutions and the culture of this country worked. And you had to really take them all apart if we were ever going to move in a different direction. And it was a very powerful argument, and it made a lot of sense to social activists at the time, and it would be criticized. And conservatives would actually respond by saying that they were rejecting the country and they were rejecting what America was uh, rather than seeing them as critics of, of what the country had done wrong. You mentioned um, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, and recently you, it, it seemed you were somewhat angry uh, about Vice President Pence using Dr. King's words as he talked about immigration. Can you say a little bit about that? Were you angry? Well, I wasn't angry, uh, but I, I found it uh, a little unsettling when I heard that. I wrote a piece for my column in CNN about that, and, and Pence invoked King uh, around Martin Luther King's birthday celebration uh, to talk about the need to uh, resolve what was then the government shutdown and the dispute over the wall. And the, and the reason I wrote a piece that the two really don't go hand in hand 
uh, was that there is a fundamental disconnect between the principles King championed uh, as a civil rights leader, as a social justice activist, and the ideas that the administration has embraced. Uh, the administration has been very hostile to the idea of diversity and social inclusion. The wall is in many ways a physical symbol of what Martin Luther King stood against. Uh, and on issues of race relations uh, and economic inequality, this administration has been really antithetical to what the legacy of King was. So while different people invoke historical figures for different reasons, I found this one in particular uh, something that's really off and that needed to have some kind of response. I, I mean, even the fact the administration back in August of 2017 had been uh, so uh, so weak in terms of its response to Charlottesville, which literally embodied what King fought for, uh, really makes it hard, I think, for the administration to legitimately claim anything about Martin Luther King as their own. We are going to take a break. Um as I take a sigh, as I listen to your response. But what I, I would like for us to come back to is what your view is of what, if anything, we can do, need to do, should do as a society moving forward. Uh, and I ask that question in part because so much of what you have written about really, as you said before, seems to be a repeat of where we've been before in some ways worse. So for those people who are actually traumatized by the fact of where we are today, I guess my shorter question to you is, what do we need to do to increase their hope for tomorrow? We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will pick up there. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk and a conversation with Julian E. Zelizer, a co-author with Kevin M. Cruz of Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974. We'll be right back. Julian, what is your sense of what we can do, need to do, should do as a society, if anything, to sort of recreate that sense of hope, perhaps, and what at least part of the American dream used to be? Well, even in our history in this book, which is, as you've now picked up a lot about uh, a bitter part of the recent past, there's a lot of hope even in the last four decades. One of the most remarkable parts of our story is how social movements have had the ability to really change the way politicians act or the way we think about certain issues. And so uh, from the conservative movement in the 1970s that uh, pushed all kinds of questions on the agenda that had been ignored uh, to the Parkland students who uh, brought gun control 
to the forefront of our national debate, we see again and again that social movements have the capacity to uh, bring out new elements of American life uh, that can be very beneficial. Uh, during the Reagan era, one story that we like to talk about is initially when the AIDS crisis reaches this country, the Reagan administration ignores it. It doesn't want to pay attention to it. Uh, the spokesperson for the administration literally laughs in a meeting with reporters uh, about AIDS and says no one here has anything like that. But one of the things that happens is the ACT UP movement and the gay rights movement create unbearable pressure over the next few years and force the administration and Congress to fund research into this horrible disease. Uh, and by 2005, President George W. Bush, an even more conservative Republican, is providing massive funding for an anti-AIDS initiative in Africa. And so uh, today, I think we can look back into the history of how average people are able to change our national debates and say that's ultimately our best hope. It won't come from Washington. It won't come from the media. Uh, but it might be students like the, the kids who came out of Parkland uh, who actually are the, the heroes of the next generation and move us to a better place. The other thing that will have to happen is we have to look at how our institutions work. We have to take a deep look at how the government works, how our political processes work, how our media works, and start to really reform those if we're going to be serious about creating a different style of public conversation. It, it sounds like you're suggesting clearly that rather than take in all that we believe and feel is wrong with the world today, that there is hope and that actually one person, uh, often with one smartphone or one Twitter account, can make a difference and grow a movement and grow change, that we really do have hope and power that we sometimes or perhaps often forget about. I think that's absolutely correct. And when we, we've written a little bit about the history of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, there's much more to be written. But it is phenomenal just to look back to the 2010s as this takes form. Uh, and it's not famous people who lead this. It's not politicians who lead this. Uh, this is uh, average citizens who have smartphones and capture bad things that are happening, or uh, activists who use Facebook and other forms of social media to gather people together around an issue, uh, they really created something that was quite important and that I think has, has continued to force a conversation that uh, really has had an impact. Look, we just had a criminal justice reform bill passed with the support of Republicans and the Trump administration on issues you would think would never fly with the modern Republican Party. I think you can credit that to Black Lives Matters, and you can credit it to the people holding the phones, the people who came out to the marches. Uh, and, and that, for me, is a real source of hope in terms of the potential uh, for things to move in the right direction. Julian, how can people get more information about what you were doing, about your book, about where you are? Uh, I have a website, uh, www.julianzelizer.com. I'm on Twitter, at Julian Zelizer. That's the best place for me. You, I announce every talk I do. 
uh, or all of my new op-eds or books. So you can look there. And finally, just look up any of my books, including Fault Lines, and uh, you, through my writing, will get the best feel of, of what I have to say and, and where I think we might be going. Thank you so much. Thanks you to you and your colleague, Professor Cruz, for the work that you have done and I know will continue to do. Thanks for having me. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. The website is mindtalk.org. You can listen to Mind Talk on demand. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable.